This is Scott Hamilton of Leham News. Welcome to another episode of 10 Minutes About. Today we will be discussing 10 Minutes About Supersonic Transports. With me today is Richard Saffron, an aerospace analyst with Seaport Global. Before becoming a Wall Street analyst, Rich was an engineer with Northrop Grumman. Among his work at Northrop was engineering on supersonic airplanes, so he's well qualified to discuss some of the technical issues in developing SSTs. Now, there has been a lot of noise, pun intended, recently about small SSTs. Arian gave up development of an SST when it finally ran out of funds. Boom gained a lot of attention when it announced a commercial deal with United Airlines. Both concept airplanes carried less than 100 passengers. But as Arian found out, and despite the hype from Boom, there remain significant technical challenges. With this background, let's get to it. The clock is now ticking. Rich, let's start at the 60,000-foot level. Give us an overview of just what it takes to develop a supersonic airplane. And remember, we're talking primarily to a lay audience, so keep the engineering jargon to a minimum. Well, I am an engineer. Using jargon is on par with breathing, but I'm going to do my best, Scott. Okay, so developing supersonic aircraft has all the complexities associated with a subsonic transport, plus the need to overcome three things. A weight penalty, the sonic boom, and a heat barrier. Now, supersonic aircraft structures are governed by the pressure of the atmosphere, the dynamic pressure. Uh, what's important is that dynamic pressure increases as the square of the velocity. So the dynamic pressure at flying at two times the speed of sound, Mach 2, is actually four times that for a subsonic aircraft. So the higher pressure means more structure. So a supersonic aircraft uh, has far more structure than a subsonic aircraft, so it's structurally less efficient less economically efficient. So the first challenge, passengers have to pay, pay a premium if you want to fly supersonic versus subsonic. Now, the sonic boom is another issue working against the uh, supersonic flight. That's a very loud noise created by the pressure difference when an aircraft flies at supersonic speeds. In the 60s, you had public pressure resulting in restrictions on a supersonic flight over the US mainland. Second challenge, you need to either relax the supersonic flight regulations or develop technology that eliminates the boom. Lastly, now we're all familiar with the fact that as you go faster, you get friction on the airframe. It causes heat buildup, particularly on the nose and leading edge. Um, uh, it turns out that flying above Mach 2.3 requires the use of special materials, typically titanium and stainless steel. Making an airplane out of stainless steel is prohibitively heavy. Making it out of titanium is difficult and expensive. It's titanium is lightweight and strong, but it's very difficult to work with and makes the airplane really expensive. So until recently, there's been a limit on how fast commercial uh, supersonic aircraft can fly due to the limitations of the materials. Uh, so the U.S. found all this out with aircraft like the XB-70, the SR-71, the Boeing commercial SST project of the 60s. Um, so, so third challenge here. You need, to, you need advanced, low-cost, lightweight materials to withstand the heat due to friction. In the 1960s and 70s, engineers coined the material unobtainium. So engines, of course, are key to an SST, just as they are to any subsonic airplane. Arian had a partnership with CFM and was making good progress. Boom has used Rolls-Royce for its studies, but I'm not aware that they have really any kind of a contract uh, with them other than studies at this stage. What are the engine challenges besides the obvious of noise and fuel economy? Okay, so from the side, uh, aside from noise and economy, as you say, there are two challenges that I see. Sufficient thrust 
and that the entire propulsion system needs to be configured for supersonic flight. Now, I'll explain that. Now, subsonic engines on subsonic aircraft have a very wide diameter front face. They're encased in nacelles that hang off the wings, well away from the airflow around the fuselage and wings. And that's all dictated by aerodynamics. Now, you want undisturbed air coming into the engines at subsonic speeds. That's important. If air comes into the engine at supersonic speeds, you have a shock wave in the engine and a loss of thrust. Now, for those technically minded out there, the exception is a ramjet, but we're going to table that for another day. Now, as I was saying, engines for subsonic aircraft want a wide diameter to accommodate as big of a fan as you can get. The wider the diameter, the more air can bypass or flow around the core and more fuel efficient the engine. Scott, that's why the A320 Leap engine is a bit more fuel efficient than the one for the MAX. It has a wider fan. But the wide diameter fans also, they cause a lot of drag and that's problematic for supersonic aircraft. So the propulsion system on supersonic aircraft needs, it needs to be embedded in the fuselage as it is for fighters like the F-15 or the F-16 or in special enclosures or nacelles, usually on the wings as in the case of Concorde. A supersonic nacelle has less drag and far more elaborate inlet design as it needs to slow down the supersonic air so when it hits the engine, the airflow is subsonic. Remember, as I said, if it's supersonic, you get a shock wave in the engine. Now that's a big design challenge, but as you can see, as long as the engine has sufficient thrust, as long as the enclosure in the cell can be designed so that it's not too draggy, you, you can use any engine with sufficient thrust. And for example, the Boeing Sonic Cruiser was gonna use a derivative of the GE90 engine on the Boeing 777. Okay, so Boeing and Lockheed designed 300 passenger SSTs to compete with the Concorde. Boeing won the government competition, but later changed the design from swing wing to match Lockheed's Delta wing design. Still later, Boeing canceled the project with uh, the uh, U.S. Congress canceled funding. And, you know, I talk about government subsidies, but that's another topic for another time. Why couldn't Boeing make a go of this, perhaps technically? Well, just to let everybody know, there is a couple of good documentaries on this subject on YouTube, but with their Model 7, Boeing's Model 733, the Model 2707, and the high-speed commercial transport studies, it comes down to the three criteria I named before. Boeing couldn't make a go of it because environmentalists wouldn't let the airplane fly over the continental U.S., and that was due to the sonic boom. Boeing ran into problems because of the heat buildup and a major design was going to be required to overcome the heat problems and keep the fuel from exploding. Uh, lastly, uh, at that time, Concorde, the British-French SST, was clearly demonstrating that they couldn't get the required premiums to get people to fly supersonic. So Boeing couldn't make a go of it because you couldn't fly domestically. They designed themselves into a corner, requiring a major redesign of the airplane, and because it would never make a profit, even if it was operational and they did the redesign. Scott, that's a thing that we've seen time and time again. You know, passengers just go for the lowest cost option, regardless of any improvement offered, be it speed, comfort, etc. Well, Boeing also proposed a Sonic Cruiser in 2001, which would fly just below the speed of sound. Setting aside the shift in market dynamics following 9-11, what were the technical issues with the Sonic Cruiser that uh, really uh, caused Boeing to abandon that project? Well, the, the Sonic Cruiser was designed to fly in what's called the transonic region. And it's a fancy term for speeds at or near Mach 1 or one times the speed of sound. Now, the airplane flew at about Mach 1, so there was no heat problem there. 
um, current materials couldn't handle. Uh, the primary technical issue was the inlet design as it needed to optimize flight at both subsonic speeds and in this transonic region near Mach 1. Nobody, nobody had ever done that before. And it actually was a very tricky design effort. Now, in, in the end, now, of course, we know the airplane wasn't built. It never passed beyond the, the, the design phase. But Boeing felt, I, I think Boeing internally felt that they could generally get around the design issues. Um, although, you know, some may have questioned that. But let, let's, let's assume that they could have. But once again, Boeing reinvented the wheel here because in the words of former Boeing commercial aircraft uh, president Jim Alba, uh, who told me at the Paris Air Show, not nearly enough passengers were going to pay the premium for speed that the uh, Sonic Cruiser offered. And that's really what it came down to. Uh, simply put, the Sonic Cruiser was a heavier airplane than the Boeing 787, which was being considered at the time. I think it was the 7E7. And passengers, according to Boeing, weren't going to pay the premium to get there faster. One of the things that I was told is that uh, the the Santa Cruiser was kind of a tweener airplane. It wasn't fast enough to really make scheduling a benefit. You'd get to London, for example, uh, from Singapore in the middle of the night and would, would have to turn around in the middle of the uh, night or morning, as it were. Uh, and it, as a tweener airplane, that also just simply didn't work very well. Now, let's get back to Boom. Boom initially had talked about a Mach 2.2 airplane, and then with the United deal, it was down to a Mach 1.7 airplane. Uh, why do you think they had to bring that down to Mach 1.7? I think they probably had to bring it down to Mach 1.7 for two reasons. The heat problem that I mentioned, of course, as you go faster, the materials have to withstand more heat. Um, but I think primarily they had to bring it down because they were running into a structural weight penalty. And this is classic, um, et cetera. I, I think that the, the issue is, is that uh, as you um, increase the speed, you have to increase the structure. As I said, the, the pressure goes up by the square of the velocity. And I think what they were finding was simply that, you know, you had a, a classic weight growth on an airplane, a classic increase in structures. And the airplane was very likely becoming unprofitable as you were going to these higher speeds and requiring additional structure. I think this is something that, you know, um, we, we can go back to, to, to almost the Wright brother days. When you design an airplane, um, you know, um, weight, weight generally continues to increase as you advance and mature the design. Uh, and eventually you get to the point where, you know, you exceed, uh, you exceed your, your, your margins and your numbers and you have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, it's it's certainly commonly known that every airplane program ever produced in the uh, jet age has always gained weight. It seems, um, and that's always been an issue. Uh, with I can that, talk to you. I'm I can sorry, talk to you. So that's that, that that's gone on since World War II, well before the jet age. Yeah. Uh, with that, we're out of time, Rich. I'd like to thank you for your uh, time today, and and uh, thanks for joining. Ten minutes about. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.